They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I trust that whether you're a believer or not, whether you've been to church one week or 1,000 weeks, that you're familiar with the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's one of the most famous stories ever told. It doesn't matter if you're a religious person or not, church or secular. We, people know the story. And when we hear the story, it's so common to us. When we hear Good Samaritan, we instantly think of something nice. It's like a sweet story, tales of heroism and, and someone who's honorable and good. The news uses the, the term Good Samaritan all the time. You know, someone's on, and next we have a story of a Good Samaritan, and you just know what's coming up next. You know what's going to happen after the commercial break. Somebody who runs and, like, pushes a baby carriage out of the way or, like, dives into harm's way at risk to themselves to save another person. It produces warm and positive feelings, and you just think, wow, like, what a good person. The original listeners of this story, though, I'm confident in saying there were no good vibes of everyone who was listening to Jesus. Nobody felt warm and fuzzy. There was not a feel-good, positive feeling. In fact, it was probably very much the opposite. When Jesus was sharing this story, it likely was making everybody who was listening to him uncomfortable, awkward, tense. You know, your palms are getting a little sweaty. You're like holding your breath and like, you know when you get nervous and you clench your fists and you don't realize it? Maybe some of them were angry and offended. There were no positive feelings. The reason is that the hero or the protagonist of the story is a Samaritan. Jesus' audience are Jews and Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They had a long history of deep-seated animosity and racism and and, and hatred. So let's talk about that for a second. Who were the Samaritans? So Samaritans were a people who, who were half Jewish and half Gentile, or non-Jewish. So history tells us that when the Syrian Empire came and conquered Jerusalem and took some of the Jews to exile and you know, just destroyed everything and, and oppressed them and were, they were occupied by the Syrian uh, Empire, there were some Jews that married the foreign women that they were either taken to or stayed with. And so they created a generation of, of mixed breed uh, or mixed, ethnically mixed children, right? So they uh, were half Jewish and half non-Jewish, anything else. The Samaritans started that way and then they also ended up creating their own religion and belief system that started in their Jewish roots that they believed they were children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as well, but then they kind of veered off in their theology, in their worship, in how they saw God and their relationship. 
So historians tell us that it's a combination of these things. Firstly, that they were mixed race, and the Jews, like, they, they were upset about this, you know, defiling and impurity of mixed blood. They didn't like that. Intermingling with Gentiles and foreigners, it was racist. And along with that, they felt like they defiled their ancestral faith. We are the people chosen of God, and you're going to go and change that? Who do you think you are? And so that started this complicated web of history of fighting and back and forth and growing hatred. When I was first thinking about this message, I was thinking, oh, what should I do to explain this? We don't need to explain it, right? We don't need to dig deep to think, oh, I wonder what that must be like. That was an ancient thing. It's been going on for generations. Historians say that the original inhabited land of the Samaritans, you know what we call that today? We call that the West Bank. So it's very likely that on the news that we're hearing about and, and the Palestinians in life today have shared ancestry with biblical Samaritans. Back near Christmas, um, this past Christmas, a highway billboard in Worcester uh, made the news. And it was this one. It was a billboard that was paid for by a pro-Israel organization. And it started off like this. Let's be clear, colon, Hamas is your problem too. But in the middle of the night, some folks came, we don't know, with pink and black paint. And they changed the sentence to this. Let's be clear. Hamas is freeing Palestine. Israel murdered 25,000 people. So I don't know what it's like for you in your settings, at home, at work, at school. But for me, like any time this story, like, like news or, or, or conversations or, or threads come up about Israel and Palestine, like, like I don't even realize that my fists are just clenching, like my heart rate starts increasing a little bit, I'm like nervously looking around at what the next person is going to say. I don't know if you're in those types of environments, but it's tense because it's not just one singular event that happened and we can be like oh it's this person's fault not no no it's historical wrongdoing and hatred and complication maybe you're somewhat removed you know in your circle of friends or your your workplace like you, you don't even really know what's happening in Israel Palestine today so it's not something that makes you nervous or makes you feel tension maybe you have something in your own ancestral history I do. So I'm Korean-American, and so with, uh, I remember, uh, actually on numerous occasions, but in a handful, I've, I've shared with, with my friends, and we've just been around a circle just chatting about the different things that, like, in our ancestral history that, that we've grown to become more aware of as we got older. And I remember I was with some of my college friends, and, and this story came up where we were sharing stories, and then one of them spoke up next, and he was, he's a Korean-American uh, guy as well. And in college, he was majoring in Japanese, the language. And he shared the story of how during our freshman year winter break, right, he went home, he was visiting his grandma, and she was like, oh, like, how was school, and blah, 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 and what are you studying, what's your major? And he said, Japanese is my major. And he said how caught off guard he was by all of a sudden, how the room went from lively and fun to like, and how the look in her eye changed as she stared at him, everyone got silent, and as she said, don't ever speak that language in front of me, she walked away and the conversation ended. 
See, my friend and I, we're the age group, and maybe a lot of you are too, where our grandparents were the young people who went through Jap Japanese occupation in Korea. I remember as a young boy, I didn't know why. I just thought it was like a cool talent, but my grandmother spoke Japanese, and I didn't know why. I was like, oh, wow, she's so smart. It wasn't until I got older that I learned in history that from the early 1900s through 1945 that Japan occupied Korea. I didn't know that. I didn't even know what occupation meant. But I got older and realized what she went through. See, during Japanese occupation, the young men were, were used as factory workers, and they were also used as military soldiers on the front line. Front line, why? Because you're the first people to die. And what's most popularly known, if you may have heard the term of comfort women, the young women, my grandmother and her peers' generation of young women, were sex slaves. They were sex slaves to the Japanese soldiers, used repetitively as subhuman means of sexual pleasure. This is a complicated history and web of racism, animosity, wrongdoing. Now, imagine if Jesus was telling this story in Korea. His ministry was in Korea, not in Israel. And he says, you want eternal life? Love God and love your neighbors as yourselves. And then a Korean religious leader walks up and tests Jesus. He says, okay, Jesus, what do you mean by that? Who is my neighbor then? And then Jesus starts sharing a story. One day in 1930, there was once a Korean man who got beat by robbers. He was left for half dead. And then a Korean religious leader and then a Korean pastor walk along the street and they walk by and they pass their, their brethren. And then a Japanese soldier walks by and, and continues the story. Do you get it? This was not a feel-good story. This is the relationship that the Samaritans and Jews had with each other. And here we have good old Jesus preaching to a Jewish audience, and he tells a story of two Jewish religious leaders walking by, neglecting their dying countrymen, and a Samaritan comes and is the hero. We have Jesus being radical again. But not subtly, he's blunt and crystal clear. Nobody in this audience is wondering what he's getting at. This is the radical way of Jesus. He's come to flip upside down a broken and sin-filled world. Because he comes with a different way, a radical way. He's like, you want to be a part of my kingdom? You want to see what I'm about to do here and start? You want to know what I'm all about? Love your neighbor. And you know who that includes? That includes your enemies, includes people you've been born and taught to hate all of your life, people who hate you and who've been taught all their lives to hate you, including those who've harmed you in the worst possible ways. So if you are following Jesus with all your heart today, this is the road that we've been called to traverse. Following Jesus is not just showing up to church on Sunday. Following Jesus is not just trying to be nicer to strangers who are grumpy on the train, holding a door open for somebody else, or tipping a waitress a little bit more in Jesus' name. Following Jesus is not just attending small groups or retreats. It's loving your enemies too, even the worst of them. Jesus' mission is to reconcile, repair, restore, and the tool that he will use that in this huge construction project is radical love, otherworldly love. Heart-wrenching love.
And he'll go on to show what that exactly looks like through the actions of the Samaritan person. He shows us to follow him and love in a way that's risky. See, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, we are not familiar with it, but the audience would have been, oh, as soon as he started the story, once there was a man walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, something bad's going to happen. They knew because it was a notoriously dangerous road. Some commentators even go so far as to say that the priest and the Levite, like walking on the other side, it wasn't them being hypocritical or bad in their faith. Some commentators will even say they were probably just being prudent because it's like kind of the, you know, like um, if any of you have ever, you know, been a lifeguard, like the training is if you're bad at swimming, if you see someone drowning, you should not go in. Even though it's like, oh no, like, like this, this is like a moral failure. Like I didn't try to save them. No, lifeguards would say, if you're bad at swimming, you will probably make them more likely to drown and then you will too. So in that same way, even though it seems like, oh, he should have gone and helped them, some commentators even say that road was so bad that it was a good idea for them to not stop. So whether or not that's true, we know that the road was dangerous and the Samaritan does what's unwise. He stops. He tends to the man in the danger zone. He puts his own life at risk to save another person. Someone that he should have hated. Someone that his friends would have said, you did what? You helped that? Someone who his, his, his family, his parents would have been ashamed at him about? You should have let that Jew die. That, that probably would have been how people thought about him. But he stops at his own personal risk. This passage and, and the way that Jesus highlights the Samaritan also shows us a love in a way that is costly. He uses his own supplies on the journey to help the man survive. This is a long road. This is not, you know, taking the pike or I-90 to go to New York City and you can just stop and get gas and get snacks and eat at McDonald's. Like, you packed everything that you could carry that you needed for the long journey. And if you ran out, it's a problem. But he gives his own personal supplies he takes longer in his trip because he pauses to help the man. It pays for his recovery, tells the innkeeper, I'll reimburse you for whatever additional money costs to, to get this man back on his feet. He loves in a way that's radically costly. And as I've already mentioned, lastly, it teaches us to love in a way that breaks boundaries. Samaritans and Jews were enemies. And like, so... Samaritans doesn't equal Palestine today, but there is overlap. And so in, in the overlapping, not like complete way, it's, a, like, it's like going, if I walked into Palestine today and was like, you should love those people. Like, you can't just say that lightly. He stops and takes pity on someone that was his enemy. His love breaks the boundary of animosity, of historical crimes against each other, racism, classism, pain. Church, when we sing, I am a C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N, this is what it's meant to convey. He ends the passage, he says, go and do likewise. Love your neighbor in a way that's risky, costly, and boundary-breaking. Thank God that for most of us, loving in a risky way, it probably won't happen in the terms of physical harm. And what I'm not encouraging is for us to go out of our way to put ourselves in risky positions. Maybe, maybe, but I'm not necessarily saying go and do that. Like, we, let's go to the like, most dangerous country in the whole world. Like, maybe that's your call. I'm not necessarily saying we must. 
But I do think we need to be willing to love in risky ways. Maybe it's risk to your reputation, which many of us protect like it's like, like a diamond. Risk to your comfort, risk to your convenience. Maybe actually that is a bigger idol than our reputation. We love convenience. If anything, we've been taught to love it and we want it more. We want more comfort, more like security, more this, more, 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 more to just protect our bubble. And we need to put that at risk, I think. Risking our personal status quo and our rhythms. Loving people to this extent, it's socially compromising. A lot of us are uncomfortable with our coworkers even knowing that we're a believer because it's socially compromising. What if we were willing to love people in a way that it didn't matter what people thought of us? We were willing to get uncomfortable, inconvenient, and disruptive, and loving in a way that was risky. Love in a way that's costly, Christians, church. Costly to your wallet, costly to your time and schedule, costly to your energy. This type of love is not easy. Jesus never called us to do something easy. It requires investment. Love in a way that breaks boundaries. Do you have enemies in your life? Is there someone in your life that you have animosity towards today? Maybe a specific individual or maybe people groups. I don't know. Bitterness, hatred, lack of forgiveness. Let your love lead you to breaking those boundaries. Be a part of God reconciling the world to him and then to one another. See, my grandmother, she actually became a Christian post-occupation, post-war, many years later. And then she just completely transformed. I mean, I didn't know her at her younger age, but as she tells us, she just became a person that just prayed and wanted to love everybody, prayed for everyone, her family, her friends, her neighbors, her enemies, including her own oppressors. And I didn't know this at the time, again, when I was younger, but I remember these memories of her eldest son. He moved to Japan, and he lived there for like five, six years. He lived in Tokyo. And he gushed about how much he loved that nation, how sad he was when he and his family had to leave how much they were invested in the work of the church there, loving the Japanese people and their culture, wanting to be embraced by them and embracing them in return. The child of a, of a comfort woman, loving, praying for, being on mission in the nation that wronged his own mother in the worst possible way. This is what the gospel does. This is what Jesus came to do in this world. He didn't come to create social clubs of niceness. He came to take a broken world and to fix it in deep, painful, heart-wrenching, difficult ways. But he shows that he can restore anything. In this story with the religious leader, we can see from step one he didn't understand the kingdom of God. He was an expert, apparently, but many of them, we realized didn't get it because he starts with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He assumes there's something that he himself can accomplish and earn, and he can earn his ticket into heaven. But Jesus knows you can't do that. He knows he can't do that. He knows that all humanity can't do that. You can't do that. I can't do that. But he can and so that's exactly what he does. He accomplishes that mission 
for us. Jesus fulfills the type of love the Good Samaritan shows and much more. Jesus perfectly loves God and then he perfectly loves his neighbor as himself, including the worst of his enemies. So Jesus is the greater and perfect good Samaritan. His love is risky. He lives a poor and lowly life. He finds himself among the outcasts of society constantly. He tarnishes his public reputation over and over again. He pushes back against the status quo. He says offensive things to people in power. He walks dangerous roads. He he rids himself of any luxury, comfort, convenience. He has none of that. His faithfulness literally gets the people angry who end up putting him to death. It's what he was doing his whole life. Jesus is the greater and perfect good Samaritan because his love is costly. He doesn't only give up his money, his time, his attention, his energy. He sacrifices his life. We know that, and we're going to celebrate that and commemorate that on Good Friday and Easter, which leads Jesus is the greater and perfect good Samaritan. Jesus' love breaks boundaries. What we'll read in in the Passion narratives is all these people arresting, slapping, putting thorns on Jesus' head, mocking him, cursing him, nailing his body, letting him suffer and suffocate to death as he bleeds on a cross and hurl insults at him, sin against him, crucify him. And it's those very people that he will love and die for, including us. He's the answer. So for those of you in the house who have never accepted Jesus before, maybe you haven't had the full picture of who he is. Because I confess that as as me included and many Christians, we have not depicted the proper picture of who he is in our living, in our example. This is Jesus. This is how amazing his love is for you. I want to encourage you to take that step of faith and give your life over to a God who is that good and is on mission to fix and save and restore the world. If you have accepted him into your life, maybe you were a little kid like me and you did it a long time ago. You were singing the songs. You're you're singing deep, deep, whoa, 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 deep, down, down. I don't really know what that song is about, but, you know, it's fun too. Let us remember... We were the man or the woman left for dead on the road. Spiritually, we needed rescue. And just as this man could not rescue or save himself, he needed someone to stop in a risky, costly, and boundary-breaking way to nurse him to health, so we needed a Savior to do exactly that same thing for us. If you follow him, this has been your testimony of what he did for you. So let us follow him and be like him in the way that we love, displaying to the world what a Christian really looks like and how we live. Let's ask the Lord to fill us with the courage, but most importantly, the love to go and do likewise. Follow him giving up your own life and placing it into his most loving and powerful hands. Earlier, we sang a song like, I called, you answered, you came to my rescue and I want to be where you are. Let us not confuse the where you are to just be the rewards of our faith. 
Where you are is where I get to be comforted and counseled and blessed and and given a a room in heaven and treasures in heaven are waiting for me. And it's all these good things because I decided one day to raise my hand when a youth leader said, who wants to accept Jesus now today? It involves all those things. All of those things are one million percent true, but they're half. The other where you are half is he's on mission to restore, to take a Palestinian and a Jewish person and break all of the hatred and allow them to love one another. And so many more ways. And as long as the church exists, if we are not on that mission with him, we've mistaken our role. We've gone so far off the path We've turned ourselves into a social club that meets to meet on Sunday mornings to make ourselves feel good, get another hit of, of, of Jesus loves me and I'm cool with my life and everything in it. When really, we should have that, accept that, and then be emboldened to go and do that to somebody else. Would you follow him and be on mission to love your enemies? to love like Jesus loved you.